Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the 17th of May, 1982, the very early hours of a cold autumn morning in Sydney. Not that anyone's likely marking such anniversaries, but today, the 17th of May, is exactly 17 months to the day since the Woolworths bombings began with an early morning blast at the company store at the Warilla Grove shopping centre. The outrageous attempt to extort Woolworths didn't exactly work out for the crims responsible. The bombers didn't get their $1 million ransom. Instead, Larry Danielson has been given 20 years and right now he's in his cell in Long Bay Jail, just three weeks into his nine-year non-parole period. Greg McCarty has also been convicted, though he's yet to be sentenced because this morning his whereabouts are anyone's guess thanks to him escaping Parramatta Jail halfway through the trial. During the anxious weeks of their terror campaign in December 1980, after the Woolworths Town Hall store was blown up on Christmas Eve, it looked as though a fourth bomb was going to explode when a security guard found a gelignite device inside a beer carton at the Woolworths Variety Store in Liverpool. This discovery triggered a full-blown police response and the Army Bomb Squad was also called in. Turned out, it was an elaborate hoax. The device hadn't been able to go off because it didn't have a detonator. But that's not the case this morning, when someone sets down a gelignite bomb on the roof of that very same Liverpool Woolworths variety store. This device is the real deal, and at 4.40am it explodes, shattering the suburban early morning silence and ripping a large hole in the galvanised iron roof. The explosion's big enough to cause damage to a company office and showers stock-damaging debris into the store. Police, firefighters and ambulance crews are soon on the scene. Thankfully, no one's hurt, there's no store-raising blaze to fight and the damage bill is reported to be a relatively small $10,000. Reporters swarm to the scene and later in the day, they press Detective Sergeant Wilfred Tunstall for information at the CIB. The first question they want answered is... Is this bombing the work of Greg McCarty? Other questions suggest themselves. Is the Woolworths bomber back to avenge his conviction and that of Larry Danielson? Is he going to make Woolworths pay this time? Is the whole sorry saga about to repeat itself? Detective Sergeant Tunstall gives the only answer he can, and that is, he doesn't know. He says police are keeping an open mind. There's nothing to implicate McCarty or to rule him out. Could have been him... Could have been his mates, could even have been copycats or teenage delinquents. 
What this Liverpool bombing does, though new Chief Superintendent Noel Morey insists the timing is a coincidence, is inspire the police to release a new photo of Greg McCarty. Actually, though, it's an old new photo. A really old new photo. The picture of Greg shows him clean-shaven and short-haired, as he might now well be. But it's also a side-on shot, with his face partly in the shadow of his army hat. His army hat. This photo was taken a decade ago during Greg's brief, inglorious military career. Back then, in early 1973, Greg had gone AWOL and become a fugitive. He'd only faced court-martial after returning of his own volition. And there's no chance Greg's going to turn himself in now. Not when he's likely to face the same 20-year sentence given to Larry Danielson and however many bonus years of jail time he'll get from a judge for his escape from Parramatta Jail. I'm Michael Adams and this is the final part of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. On the day of the Liverpool bombing, John Hendry, still Woolworths Director of Corporate Relations, said there were no further plans to tighten security. This was to be one of the last company statements he'd give to the press because the man who dealt with the Woolworths bombers for weeks on the phone was about to retire after more than 30 years of faithful service. John Hendry had to hope that his going away presence would include Mr Dunmore, aka Greg McHardy, back behind bars. What John didn't know, what no one bar the fugitive himself knew, was that Greg was by then already behind bars or at least, a bar. For the record, Greg McCarty was to deny that he'd blown up the Liverpool Woolworths store, as he would have, because why admit it? But his denial seems to be true in terms of the chronology you're about to hear. Around the start of May 1982, a short-haired, clean-shaven bloke of about 30 named Noel Stratford turned up on a motorbike in the tiny outback town of St George in Queensland, 500 clicks west of Brisbane. New arrival Noel presented himself at the commercial hotel and asked publican John Swanson for a job. John gave him a chance but would soon come to think that Noel was a bit of a nervous character. He thought people were staring at him or talking about him behind his back. Nevertheless, there was Noel serving beers every night to the regulars. Regulars that included a dozen of the region's coppers. No wonder Noel Stratford was a little bit nervous. After three weeks, John didn't think he was working out, so he let Noel go. Soon after that, a bloke rocked up to St George's Australian Hotel and asked the publican, Vince Bluey McIntosh, for a job. This would-be worker's name? Don McIntosh. What were the chances? But Don, he had a driver's license to prove that's who he was. Vince Bluey McIntosh gave Don McIntosh a trial run, and that went well, so Bluey gave him a job. He even left Don in charge when he went out of town for a fortnight. Bluey clocked Don as a suave ladies' man, and he was pretty sure he already had a girlfriend in town. But Don would clam up a bit when asked about his background, mumbling something about having people in Townsville. One of the Australian hotel's regulars, a young guy named Larry Adams, drank with Don and reckoned he was a bit of a weirdo. He'd later tell the Courier-Mail, quote, He talks in riddles, like he was floating for a while, and once told me he was the son of Bluey, but he never called him dad or anything, just Bluey. Don, who, to be honest, sounded like a bit of a stoner, also told other drinkers that he was related to Bluey. As for Bluey himself, well, he didn't seem to get wind of these claims, but he had no complaints about Don, later telling the Courier-Mail, quote, When I came back, the drinkers were so impressed, they said, Where did you drag him from? Bluey continued, I couldn't fault the man for personality and service. Bluey also didn't recognise Don as anyone he might have seen in the newspapers or on the telly in the past few months. Same as none of the coppers at the commercial hotel had thought that nervous barman Noel looked a bit familiar as he poured their schooners of 4X. From what St George's two publicans were to tell the newspapers, Noel Stratford, a.k.a. Don McIntosh, a.k.a. Gregory Norman McCarty, appears to have spent about six weeks in their small outback town. Then he was gone. 
heading to the Gold Coast, with one report saying he went in the company of a few mates he'd made in St George. In mid-June, Greg reportedly liberated a driver's licence and a birth certificate in different names from a house in Fig Tree Pocket in suburban Brisbane. The owners apparently realised that the papers were gone, but didn't report them as missing. Somehow Greg knew this, and knew he was still in the clear to use one or both of his new IDs to try to get a legal passport. Though Greg's new mates apparently didn't know his real identity, Gold Coast Police had somehow learned that one of Australia's most wanted was in their midst. How'd they know this? It wasn't reported, but given how different Greg looked to those widely circulated photos, it seems unlikely he was recognised by a random stranger. What seems more probable is he said the wrong thing to the wrong person. However they knew, in the third week of June, Queensland cops raided a surfer's paradise house and missed Greg by mere minutes. After that, Detective Sergeant Pat Glancy of the Gold Coast Consorting Squad led a special team dedicated to catching the fugitive. On the night of the 29th of June 1982, Greg went to a local hotel for a few beers. And while he was there, he scored a bit of weed. Later, Greg returned to the unit in Ida Street in Paradise Point that he was sharing with two unsuspecting mates. Beers and a few bongs, just another pleasant night on the lamb in service paradise. Greg had been out of Parramatta Jail for 10 weeks now. Soon, he'd be out of the country. The next morning at 5.30, Gold Coast detectives led by Detective Sergeant Glancy surrounded the Ida Street unit block. They stormed in and caught Greg still in bed. Clean-shaven, short hair, he looked nothing like his photos. The cops found Greg's half-filled-out passport application. They also found his stash of weed. Greg was arrested for possession, which was enough to hold him. He faced the magistrate's court later that day. He admitted that, yep, he was the bloke that the New South Wales police were after. When the magistrate asked if he was applying for bail, Greg broke into a smile, laughed and said, no. Greg entered a guilty plea on the cannabis charge and the magistrate ordered him to two weeks in jail in default of a $250 fine. Not that Greg was going to serve more than a day or so. Extradition proceedings were underway and Detective Sergeant John Anderson was en route to Queensland to bring the bomber extortionist SKP back to New South Wales. Greg McCarty's capture was big news, but it was what he'd been up to over the past 10 weeks that had newspaper sub-editors rubbing their hands with glee. The Courier-Mail's front page on the 2nd of July featured a headline for the ages. Bomber ran the pub, but the town had no idea. Down south, the Daily Telegraph was loving it too. Bomber was behind the wrong bars. Woolies extortionists served beer to police while on the run. The newspapers also reported just how close Greg had come to getting out of the country, with criminals then easily able to procure legitimate passports under fake names. By the time these headlines and articles appeared, Greg was back in Sydney. Unlike Larry Danielson, who'd bared his face when arrested because he thought it made him seem less guilty, Greg was careful to keep his mug covered from the newspaper and television cameras. No sense giving everyone an up-to-date look at him that the cops could use next time he escaped. With Greg McCarty back behind bars, on the 14th of July 1982, John Hendry, having reached the company-mandated retirement age of 60, bade a reluctant farewell to his beloved company, Woolworths. For the next 37 years, he'd be a devoted family man, grandfather, and active in the community. As the years rolled by and old soldiers went to their rest, John became one of the few servicemen left who remembered the day the Japanese submarines attacked Sydney, with him recounting his story in several news features. John Hendry passed away in October 2019 at the age of 97. While the man who'd been his Woolworths nemesis had another four decades of good life ahead of him, in July of 1982, Greg McCarty was looking at spending a substantial amount of that time behind the wrong sort of bars once he was sentenced for the bombings, the extortion, and his subsequent escape. This reckoning was delayed until the end of July while his defence lawyer Mr Keogh gathered character references. 
The statement that made the most impact was delivered in court in person by the man who'd known Greg his whole life, his dad Norm. This old bloke said his son had been a good kid who never got in much trouble. Under questioning from Mr. Keogh, Norm said, quote, I think the breakup of his marriage had a lot to do with it, and he got into a bit of strife in Townsville, and he was on the run, and it was just out of character, just unbelievable when I heard the news that they'd picked him up in the harbour because it was just never his caper. I just seemed to think he was under some sort of duress, and that he got tangled up, and he has been a boy that is a little bit easily led, and I think he has just got mixed up into the wrong crew, and this is the result of it. On the 29th of July, while acknowledging that Greg came from a very respected Rockhampton family, Judge Muir said he didn't believe he'd been under duress when he committed the horrific crimes for which he'd been convicted. Judge Muir handed down the same sentence he'd given to Larry, 20 years with nine years non-parole. Greg was to face the other charges against him down the track. True to form though, he wasn't gonna hang around to hear those verdicts just like he wasn't going to be serving no stinking nine-year minimum. You can say what you like about Greg McHardy, but he wasn't one to take a custodial sentence lying down. At 10.50am on the 28th of November 1982, the Woolworths bomber and three other prisoners, one sex offender and two armed robbers, used tin snips to cut a three-metre wire fence away from its post inside the Metropolitan Remand Centre at Long Bay Jail. The inmates squeezed through and made their way to one of the main walls. There, they used a makeshift ladder of knotted sheets to start climbing up the six metres of stone that separated them from freedom. Get down the other side, and they were gone. A prison officer in Tower 5 spotted them and fired a warning shot. The blokes dropped back inside the prison wall. They ran back through the hole in the fence and stormed a gate that was manned by another officer. This guard didn't back down, and for his trouble, he suffered minor injuries when one of Greg's mates smashed him half a dozen times with a wooden broom handle. Now desperate, the four would-be escapees took off across a football field where they were surrounded by guards and surrendered. Greg and one of his mates were transferred to Goulburn's special security unit, while the other two were packed off to Parramatta Jail. Greg McHardy was to get another five years for his post-war worst crimes. So all up, he was now doing 25 years, or so it seemed. In late 1983, Larry and Greg appealed their convictions and they lost. 12 months later, Greg tried to appeal again. This time his claim was pretty ballsy. He reckoned he'd been done a serious injustice when Judge Muir had continued the trial after his escape. The High Court didn't really consider this to be grounds for an appeal. Escape attempts and far-fetched appeals, these weren't the way to freedom. As it turned out, all Greg and Larry had to do was sit still and chill. At this time, the pressure on New South Wales's overcrowded prisons was relieved by a system of automatic remissions granted for good behaviour. Good behaviour basically amounted to not causing any trouble, so I'm not exactly sure how that squared with Greg's November 1982 escape attempt that had resulted in a guard being bashed. Here was another puzzling thing. Prisoners' remissions came not off their sentences, but off their non-parole periods. So it was in March 1988 that the outgoing Labor New South Wales government announced to great uproar that Larry Danielson was going to be released. By then, he'd served about one-third of his 20-year sentence, and he still had three years left on his non-parole period. Nonetheless, Larry walked out of Long Bay Jail on the 9th of March, 1988, and he was immediately deported to New Zealand. Like I say, this was controversial, but Larry had actually been a model prisoner, and now he was no longer Australia's problem. But the real outcry, that came two months later, on the 2nd of May, when Greg McHardy got out of Cessnock Jail, not as an escapee, but as a free man. He'd served less than six of his 25 years. Incoming Liberal New South Wales Premier Nick Greiner had inherited this system, and he called Greg's release a, quote, bloody outrage. His new Minister for Corrective Services, Ray Aston, reacted angrily to what he called a, quote, walk-in, walk-out system, and he vowed to ask Cabinet for, quote, the toughest of reforms. 
Ray Aston didn't live to see it, dying suddenly three weeks later, aged just 44 after contracting a virus. Greg and Larry, they were free to live the rest of their lives. Greg McCarty remained anonymous for much of the next 20 years. That was until New Year's Day 2005 when he faced Parramatta Bail Court over an alleged stabbing. Greg, then 52 and living in Botany, listed his occupation in court documents as a real estate agent and business executive. The court heard that he and a man and that man's girlfriend had been drinking at the Sir Joseph Banks Hotel in Mascot on the 23rd of December. According to the Sydney Morning Herald report at the time, Greg had allegedly said to his drinking buddy, quote, you would have heard about me from your brother. They call me the bomber. The bloke allegedly replied, quote, yeah, I've heard my brother talk about you. All was going well at the pub, and afterwards they went to Greg's house for more drinks. Then Greg allegedly got angry when the guy wanted to leave. So Greg allegedly pulled out a butcher's knife and stabbed him 20 times. Greg McCarty was refused bail and was remanded to appear in central local court on the 10th of January. According to a later report in the Newcastle Herald, Greg was acquitted of the stabbing charge and thereafter returned to obscurity. If he's still alive, Greg McCarty would now be 68. I've not tried to track him down because I figure he did his time and should be able to live quietly. Yet, if Greg should happen to hear this podcast and want to tell his side of things, I can be contacted via the Forgotten Australia page on Facebook, Forgotten Oz Podcast. As for Larry Danielson, well, he had a whole other life when he got back to New Zealand. While he'd been born Keith Bradford and become infamous as Larry Danielson, he now took on the new nom de larrikin of Peter Fisher. Soon after returning to New Zealand, he met and fell in love with a woman named Claire, and they'd live happily together for the next quarter of a century. Larry did keep up his larrikin ways, drinking, fishing, cooking, hosting, playing music, and he won himself a new legion of friends and fans with his good company and his always great tall tales. But Larry had long dreamed of taking his storytelling to a new level by writing a book. In 1995, he began scribbling a historical fiction based on the experiences of Australian Coast Watcher Lieutenant Commander Paul Mason, who Larry had apparently met during his time living in Papua New Guinea. Paul Mason's story is no longer well known, and it really is the stuff of Forgotten Australia, because it's an incredible tale of bravery and survival against overwhelming odds that saw one man help change the course of World War II. No prizes for guessing that I'm going to cover Paul Mason's life in an upcoming episode. While Larry Danielson was writing fiction based on this slice of Forgotten Australia, he and Claire had a lot of good times. One of her fondest memories was seeing in the new millennium with Larry while they both watched Kiri Tikanawa singing on the beach at dawn in Gisborne as the sun came up on New Year's Day. By around 2008, Larry and Claire had taken over a motel restaurant in Waipu, with Larry reprising his role as host with the most. Given his chequered history with insurance scams, it seemed like karma came to bite Larry in 2011. That was when their motel suffered severe flooding damage. He and Claire made a $280,000 insurance claim, had it approved, and hired workers to make repairs. Before the insurance company paid them out, it went into liquidation, leaving Larry, who was now 80, to work 16 hours a day, 7 days a week, for the next 16 months to try to square his accounts with the workmen. Around this time, Larry got more bad news. He had leukemia. To keep his spirits up and to give him a sense of purpose, Claire encouraged him to fulfill that dream of finishing his book. Or, as it turned out, books. The first volume of his The Bells of Hell trilogy was self-published in September 2013. The second volume followed soon after, and the final one came out in December 2013. These books are available on Kindle, and they show that Larry, aka Peter Fisher, had a storytelling talent that extended far beyond the bar or the stand in a Sydney courtroom. Larry was working on a follow-up, part four, when he passed away a month later, January 2014, at the age of 81. 
After he died, Claire and his friends celebrated him by putting together a 50-some page manuscript called Fate, Sheep and Meat Pies. This document comprised some of Larry's own written tall tales, along with a lot of very fond recollections from friends who'd spent wild and crazy times with Larry in New Zealand and Papua New Guinea. When Claire sent me this document, I laughed out loud. That's because straight after the title page, there's a photo of Larry standing in a garden amid sunflowers and greenery. He looks like he's in his mid-70s and he's in really good physical condition. It's easy to come to this conclusion because Larry is stark naked. Well, apart from leather sandals, a straw hat, tinted sunglasses and a blue tie tied around his waist that strategically covers little Larry. In one hand, he holds a wine glass. In the other, a wine bottle and he wears a huge smile. Fate Sheep and Meat Pies has an epigraph from Larry, quote, I find contentment in having never led a righteous, godly or sober life. This sounds like one of the truest things that Larry Danielson ever said. Where did the Woolworths bombings fit into that? The crimes and punishment don't get a mention in Fate, Sheep and Meat Pies. While Claire decided against a formal interview, she told me via email that the Larry she knew was a very warm and loving partner. Claire also said that in the quarter century she'd spent with him, Larry had always professed that he was innocent. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Was it really possible that Larry Danielson was innocent? Well, if you were on the jury, would you have voted to convict? Saying that Greg was guilty seemed to be a no-brainer. He'd been caught red-handed and then he'd escaped. But Larry? Back in 1982, I have to say I'm pretty sure I would have voted guilty. The voice and insulation tape evidence against him was pretty compelling. As a juror, I would also have spent much more time during the trial hearing what the police had to say and likely I would have believed them. At the time, New South Wales detectives were considered above board by the majority of citizens. When they gave testimony, what they said was generally believed. When they corroborated each other, it was because they were telling the truth. Yet, as we've heard, their testimony about what both accused men had said during interview would today be inadmissible because it hadn't been recorded or independently corroborated. The testimonies from Detective Sergeants John Openshaw, Norm Hazard, John Anderson and Desmond Johnson formed a very large part of the Crown's case, whether or not verbaling actually took place. While we're discussing evidence now and then, it's also worth noting that the prosecution and defence could today have quickly settled the question of Larry Danielson and the dates with GPS records, mobile phone tower pings, FPOS receipts and footage from the gazillion surveillance cameras that track our every public movement. What really intrigues me is what the future held, not in terms of technology, but for Detective Sergeants John Openshaw and Desmond Johnson, who were respectively the first police to interview Greg McCarty and Larry Danielson. Both of these men, whose testimony was vital, would have intersections with Nettie Smith, who in 1980 had been identified as a business partner of alleged organised crime figure Bob Evans, who, as we know, lurked around this story like some sort of phantom. Now that we've heard about the crimes, interviews, trial and convictions in detail, it's worth hearing a little bit more about Detective Sergeant John Openshaw's spectacular fall from grace. He was kicked out of the police force in 1986. The New South Wales Police Tribunal ruled against him on three counts of misconduct over his improper association with criminals. The tribunal was read a transcript of an intercepted phone call between Detective Openshaw and Nettie Smith. Here's the highlight. Nettie Smith. I've got the 10,000. Do you want me to bring the 10? Detective Openshaw. Yeah. Smith. We're going to whack it three ways? 
Openshaw, yeah. When the police prosecutor asked Detective Openshaw if the 10 referred to money, he had to admit he'd been trying to think of something else it might refer to, but had come up blank. He was asked again if this conversation was about money. Quote, Yes, it appears that way. So this guy had been willing to throw away his police career for $10,000 divided between him, Nettie Smith, and another crook. In a terrific irony, he'd been caught on tape, just like Larry Danielson and Greg McCarty. Detective Sergeant Openshaw's association with Nettie Smith dated back to at least March 1983, by which stage they were friendly enough for the cop to lend money to the crim. Detective Openshaw was also taped giving information to drug dealer David Kelleher about his impending arrest. In recommending his dismissal in 1986, the police tribunal said that Detective Openshaw had not been honest in his evidence. And even when he was kicked out of the force, he wasn't done with corruption. In 1990, now private citizen John Openshaw was caught on tape shaking down a female brothel owner for $700 a month, payment for protection against police harassment, a scheme he pleaded guilty to being in on with a serving police officer. Amusingly, given what Greg McHardy had said 10 years earlier about being just a courier, John Openshaw had said during his dealings with this brothel owner that he was just a messenger. The court didn't believe him any more than the court had believed Greg back in the day. In newspaper articles in 1986 when John Openshaw was booted from the force and in 1992 when he was sentenced to two years jail for the brothel bribery scheme, he was described as having been a star cop whose career highlight had been bringing the Woolworths bombers to justice. Which can't help but raise the question, when did John Openshaw become corrupt and when did he start doing business with Nettie Smith? We just don't know. Was it a coincidence that Nettie just happened to have been in cahoots with Bob Evans at this time? Maybe it was. Nettie did intersect with a lot of crims and a lot of cops. Another of these well-publicised intersections was with Detective Sergeant Des Johnson. Larry's acquaintance from Flicks and the man who'd allegedly threatened him during a drunken interrogation and then recorded his phone call in murky legal circumstances. Detective Sergeant Johnson's integrity was seriously questioned by the Independent Commission Against Corruption in 1994. This was in relation to a crime a decade earlier. Here's how the ICAC report, which is titled Investigation into the Relationship Between Police and Criminals, described what Nettie Smith had done. Quote, Late at night on the 28th of December 1984, Smith bashed a doorman at the City of Sydney RSL Club. Smith had been drinking heavily earlier that evening and he and his friends had been refused admittance to the club. Shots were fired and a knife was drawn on the doorman. Smith claimed he paid police, including then Detective Sergeant Brian Harding, to ensure he would not be prosecuted. As it turned out, the conduct of the investigation was less than satisfactory and Smith was never charged, even though many knew he had assaulted the doorman. Detective Sergeant Des Johnson was the chief investigator in this case. The bash doorman, Christopher Shaw, testified that when he identified his assailant as Nettie Smith and said he wanted to take the matter to court, Detective Sergeant Johnson had said, and this is quoted from ICAC, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Detective Sergeant Johnson denied this, but ICAC Commissioner Ian Temby QC in his report said, quote, Despite his denial, I conclude that Johnson did say words to the effect set out above. Johnson said the identification by Shaw of Smith, such as it was, could not suffice to take the matter to court. That is correct, but more could and should have been done. According to Christopher Shaw, Nettie Smith later approached him and convinced him that proceeding with the matter was useless because he had the cops in his pocket. Nettie paid his victim $1,000 to drop the complaint. Then Nettie's solicitor called Detective Sergeant Johnson to advise him the witness was withdrawing the allegation. Detective Sergeant Johnson accepted the solicitor's word about this and investigated no further. Detective Sergeant Johnson denied to ICAC that he'd been in charge of the investigation. The commissioner didn't accept this, saying it was ridiculous when he'd gone to the club, tried to find Smith and interviewed witnesses. Or at least that's what he'd appeared to have done. The ICAC report said, quote, 
Johnson spent a deal of time looking for Smith early in the week. Smith's habit for a long time was to come from Newcastle to Sydney on or about Thursday of each week and return at about the end of the weekend. Johnson was looking for him at precisely the wrong time. Perhaps that was accidental, perhaps not. Further, he did not seek to have a radio message sent out calling for notification as to Smith's whereabouts, nor did he take any steps to check Smith's addresses. Regarding the withdrawal of the complaint by Shaw against Smith, the commissioner wrote, quote, Johnson conceded that he did not ask Shaw if he wished to withdraw the complaint. He expected Shaw to volunteer that information to him. All of this is most surprising. This was not a personal matter between Shaw and his assailant. Smith and his associates fired a shot and seriously bashed a doorman who was simply doing his job. Even if the doorman did not want to proceed, the matter should have been pursued and attempts made to get further evidence. This also puzzled the commissioner. Quote, Johnson still had the police brief in his possession at the time of the commission hearing. This was nearly a decade after the assault. The ICAC report continued of Detective Sergeant Johnson, quote, he could give no cogent explanation for that fact. The ICAC report said the investigation into the bashing was unsatisfactory. Quote, it was never drawn to a proper conclusion. It simply lapsed. The commissioner asked, quote, why was the investigation so unsatisfactory? Was it mere incompetence on Johnson's part, or was it because Smith paid off the police, or was it due to intervention by Harding? Everything that Nettie Smith says needs to be taken with a pound of salt, but here's what's in the ICAC report. The day after the bashing and after the shot was fired, supposedly by Nettie's mate Graham Abo Henry, cops Roger Rogerson and Brian Harding had met with Nettie to tell him he'd been a very silly boy and that the doorman had been seriously hurt. From the ICAC report, quote, Smith said that he thought that Harding mentioned the police officer in charge of Central, a sergeant named Johnson, who was going to arrest him. He asked Harding what could be done, and Harding said it could be fixed up. After brief negotiations, a figure of $10,000 was arrived at. Police, in Smith's version, were allegedly later dissatisfied with this amount as it filtered through their ranks. Quote, According to Smith, Harding said Johnson wasn't happy with the amount of money, and Smith told Harding, tell Johnson to get stuffed. Who said what? did what, and was paid what. ICAC didn't have the answers. The commissioner was unable to conclude that Nettie Smith had, as he'd claimed, actually paid off Brian Harding, Roger Rogerson, and Des Johnson. The commissioner did find, however, that none of the witnesses, with the exception of the victim, Christopher Shaw, were credible. This included Detective Sergeant Johnson, who, quote, said as little to the commission as he sensibly could. Ian Temby, QC, would conclude this, quote, I am satisfied that the investigation was not genuine and the deficiencies disclosed in it have to do with more than mere incompetence. It is obvious Johnson, the man in charge of the investigation, did not do his job properly. Indeed, it is hard to believe that he was even trying. The ICAC report would recommend, quote, consideration should be given to the taking of action against Johnson for a disciplinary offence. Namely, in January 1985, he failed in his duty as a police officer to properly investigate the alleged assault at the City of Sydney RSL Club, which took place on 28 December 1984. For the record, Detective Sergeant Des Johnson was not subject to any disciplinary action, and the matter went no further. Nettie Smith remained free. If he had been convicted, how long would he have served? It's hard to say, but there's a chance, a good chance, that Nettie wouldn't have been out on the streets on the 30th of October 1987 when, in a road rage incident, he killed a tow truck driver named Rodney Favell. That Detective Sergeants John Openshaw and Des Johnson both had interactions with Nettie Smith soon after he'd been tied to Bob Evans is curious and, you could say, circumstantial, just like much of the case against Larry and Greg. Of course, the biggest stench hanging over the trial was that police used the evidence of Colin John Fisk, then secretly one of Australia's most notorious pedophiles, under police protection in return for paying bribes and serving as an informer.
If you'd been a juror and been able to see this future, would you have maybe concluded there was reasonable doubt in the case against Larry Danielson and Greg McHardy? Maybe. Despite all of this, it does seem to me that they were actually guilty. Yet, it also seems possible that behind them lurked a Mr. Big. A Mr. Big who set them in motion. A Mr. Big who, well-connected and well-protected, was able to disappear into the shadows when the ransom pickup went wrong, leaving them to take the fall. The Woolworths $1 million ransom, which is nearly $5 million in today's money, would have been up there with the biggest of big scores in Australian criminal history. As we've heard, Greg McCarty had very minor form. Granted, he was connected, but a mastermind? It doesn't seem so. Everyone I've spoken to who knew Larry has told me the same thing, that they were both shocked, but not surprised when he was charged and convicted. Shocked that he'd gone so far as to risk people's lives, not surprised because it seemed in keeping with his opportunistic ways. Even so, it strikes me as a big jump for Larry to go from allegedly sinking boats for insurance in Papua New Guinea and skirting licensing laws in Sydney to blowing up Woolworths stores with potentially deadly consequences. Was his heart really that dark? The people I've spoken to, and people you've heard, characterised him as a good fun bloke, a larrikin, a nice villain, as one old mate put it. Only Rick Poole, who hired him to run the Sea Life Lodge, said he saw a nastier streak. Rick, who didn't want to be recorded for this podcast, claimed to me that a few years into Larry's jail term, a recently released Long Bay prisoner turned up on his doorstep. This guy, who Rick knew, claimed that Larry Danielson had asked him to kill Rick Poole. Why? Rick said he didn't know. So maybe Larry was more than just a happy minstrel who wandered into a $1 million bombing extortion plot. Maybe he was the mastermind. But here's a question. How did Larry intend to move quarter of a million dollars worth of gold bullion and a quarter of a million dollars worth of diamonds? It's not like he and Greg could just take this bling to the local hock shop. This alone suggests that there was somebody else involved because it seems quite unlikely that they'd risk everything for this $1 million score and then decide after the fact how they were going to convert half of it into cash. Then there's the chronology, which still perplexes me. So the Jellignite was stolen from the Dunmore Quarry on the 22nd of September, 1980. Given these were the explosives used in the Woolworths bombings, it's reasonable to assume that the plan was already formulated at this time. You don't risk serious jail time by stealing half a ton of explosives just to have them on hand in case you decide you have a use for them. Yet, according to Greg's girlfriend Karen, Queensland Police and New South Wales Police, Greg was still in Queensland at this time. In the official version, it was another month before he came south and moved into Bob Evans' place in Huskisson. And it was supposedly another two months before he met Larry Danielson. Granted, they may have met earlier, but this was never the subject of any prosecution claims or witness testimony. The tanks and scuba hood that Greg would wear were definitely those that had been stolen from the Sea Life store on the 15th of October. This also suggests the plan was well developed, including the ransom pickup before Greg arrived in Huskisson. Yet, nine days later, on the 24th of October, a man walked into the town hall head office and left a note threatening to poison products in Woolworths stores unless he was paid $800,000. Who was this? It was never determined. Was the poison plot, as police at one time theorised, just meant to see how the company would react? If so, was this Larry acting alone before he met Greg McCarty, who he'd then rope into the bombing plot? Or had they already met, perhaps in Queensland, as John Horobin reckoned he'd learned from the police? If that was true, then how did that meeting come about? In October 1980, Larry and Greg would appear to have been linked by one person we know about, Bob Evans. Larry, as a Huskisson resident for six months, had run into the man. Greg, meanwhile, had worked for him at Sydney's Dunbarton Castle Hotel, which was allegedly a hub for criminal operations. 
Any pre-December 1980 meeting between Greg McCarty and Larry Danielson is speculative, but it was established during the trial that Bob Evans had, at least indirectly, caused the culprits to meet via recommending to Greg that he look up John Horobin, who then introduced Greg to Larry. Given that the court was to hear in detail, for instance, from a police diver about the difference in weight of the wet and dry ransom bag, and from various Huskisson barflies who may or may not have seen Larry and Greg at such and such a time on Christmas Eve, why was it so easy for Bob Evans to avoid having to appear in court? Was what he would have said really of so little value that it could be dismissed in a short police summary statement and assurances that he knew nothing? Why was he allowed to go overseas? Here's another thing that doesn't quite make sense. Once the $1 million demand letter had been delivered to Woolworths on the 22nd of December, why was the town hall store bombed in such ruthless fashion on Christmas Eve? The company had complied with the extortionist's demand to keep quiet, and it had given no indication that it wasn't going to cooperate. What had made Larry and Greg risk killing people when the Warilla and Maitland explosions had already left no doubt that they meant business? Why go ahead with the town hall bombing when they'd set out their demands in that letter? Quote, This week we exploded two devices in two separate areas of New South Wales. They were both detonated in the early hours of the morning to demonstrate our ability with explosives and your vulnerability. There will be no further nighttime exercises. But here's the important point. If it is necessary for us to bring more pressure to bear upon your company, we intend to place explosives in your stores which will explode during peak shopping hours. The letter also said, At present, the media have not created a sensational story, nor have the police really committed themselves publicly to the obvious link between Marilla and Maitland. Let's keep it that way. If your immediate cooperation is not forthcoming, we will proceed with our next program of explosions. That letter was received by Woolworths on the 22nd of December. John Hendry had this letter when he spoke to the Sydney Morning Herald, who reported the following day, quote, Mr. Hendry said yesterday the chain was not ready to accept that all the incidents were linked and that somebody was pursuing a vendetta against it. So, as far as the bombers knew, Woolworths was doing as instructed. Why the town hall blast? Were they given some sort of information from inside the police or the company that made them think Woolworths still might not play ball? It's worth remembering that in the early days of the extortion attempt, Woolworths was concerned that the bombers had an inside man. And as we've heard, the New South Wales police force at this time wasn't exactly squeaky clean. What's also important to remember is that the early Mr Dunmore calls, including the one saying the Christmas Eve bomb was about to go off, weren't recorded, and so they couldn't be presented for comparison with later taped conversations. It's also puzzling that after the Christmas Eve bombing, it took another five days for the extortionists to again make contact. Maybe Larry and Greg were simply busy with Christmas down in Huskisson. Maybe they were quietly freaking out at just how far they'd gone. Maybe, maybe they and others involved were arguing over what had been done and what was to be done next. There are so many maybes, in large part because these crimes were carried out by seeming amateurs who existed on the periphery of New South Wales organised crime networks, which were then secretly in bed with corrupt elements of the state's police force. For this reason, we can't be confident we know the whole truth about the Woolworths bombings of 1980. While Detective Sergeant John Openshaw and Detective Sergeant Des Johnson's integrity was later called into question, that of the man who first dealt with Larry and Greg was not. This, of course, was John Hendry. The old soldier had plenty to be proud of in the way he'd handled the Woolworths bombers. This was despite enormous stress. Not just caused by the successive bombings, including the town hall one, which he barely escaped, but also because the demand letter had made not-so-veiled threats against key Woolworths personnel and even their families. Nevertheless, John, day in and day out, had done his best to balance the interests of the public, the company, the police and the media. John alone had talked at length with both bombers and cooperated for weeks with the police leading the investigation. John testified in the committal hearings and again in the criminal trial. Perhaps more than anyone, he had cause to hold Larry and Greg in contempt for what they'd done, putting him and his colleagues in danger, making his family fear for their safety, 
risking the lives of Woolworths customers and destroying property belonging to the company he'd spent most of his adult life helping to build. John Hendry was conservative, tough-minded and firmly on the side of law and order. Yet John's daughter told me this week that for the rest of his life, he remained convinced that justice hadn't been done in this case. He had no doubt that Larry Danielson and Greg McCarty were involved and they deserved what they got. But John just didn't believe they'd had what it took to pull off a crime as big and audacious as the Woolworths extortion bombings of 1980. John Hendry was sure that the mastermind or masterminds had gotten away with it. I'm Michael Adams, and this has been the final instalment in the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. When my mate M. Hesseltine suggested this yarn, I had no idea what a deep dive it'd end up being. So, many thanks to Emma, many thanks to everyone who shared their memories, and many thanks to you for coming along with me on what I hope has been an intriguing and entertaining exploration of a major crime that somehow disappeared into the memory hole. I'd like to thank you also for the lovely reviews you've been leaving. They mean a lot, and they also do help the show reach new listeners. Just a note, when I began writing this series, I did contact the New South Wales Police to ask if any of the senior officers involved in the investigation were still serving. I wasn't particularly surprised to hear that they'd all retired, so I contacted the Retired and Former Police Association of New South Wales and provided a list of the men I hoped might share their recollections. The association told me they'd forward my request to the individuals and it'd be up to them to make contact. None of the former officers did, and I'd like to say that I'm not reading anything into this. Some have no doubt passed away, and the rest would now be in their old age. It's just to let you know that I did try to get their side of things beyond what appeared in the court transcripts, the newspapers, and the Australian Police Magazine article penned by Task Force boss Detective Sergeant John Anderson in 1985. But the offer to talk still stands and I can be contacted via the Forgotten Australia Facebook page, Forgotten Oz Podcast. This has been the final episode of the pretty long Season 3. Forgotten Australia is coming back very soon with Season 4. I've got some cracking stories I can't wait to share, from a 1930s murder mystery every bit as bizarre as the shark arm case, to the amazing story of an underground rescue on the West Australian goldfields just after the turn of the century. So, until then, as always, thanks for listening to Forgotten Australia, which is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.